Not, not about the president. But it, did, it does involve the president. It's a, a joke about the rabbi uh, who, at the beginning of the great Alenu, prostrates himself uh, in the synagogue uh, during the holidays. And he says, oh, God, before you, I'm nothing. And then the cantor, not wanting to be outdone by the rabbi, gets on her knees and, 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 and goes flat on the ground and says, oh, God, I am nothing before you. And then the temple president, who also gets caught up in the fervor of the moment, joins in, flings himself on the ground and says, oh, God, before you, I'm nothing. And the rabbi, looking at the president, gives the cantor a little nudge and says, ha, look who thinks, look who thinks he's nothing. Now, I have a degree in Freudian psychology, which is true. Okay, and I know that there is truth in every joke, not that you're nothing. Okay. Sometimes it's easy to spot. Other times, maybe not so easy. But it, but the truth is, in every joke, there is an element of truth. So what's the element of truth in this joke? It is this. These days of awe are our days of judgment. And we think that means that it is the day that God is supposed to judge us and deem us worthy for another year of life as he inscribes us in the book of life. I grew up with that image. How many of you grew up with that image? God writing us down in the book of life, right? Uh, that we get the notion that God is looking over us and he's saying, oh, yeah, <laughs> no way, <laughs> you know, to see whether or not we're going to be uh, uh, rewarded. To this day, it's hard to break away from that image. It's an enduring image. But there is something else going on in this joke. When the rabbi said, Looks who, look who thinks he's nothing, who exactly is he judging? Is it God? Is Of course not. He's judging the president because the president, because the rabbi is passing judgment on somebody else. This is indeed Judgment Day. But too often we are poised to be the ones doing the judgment and not let God do the judging. And this past pandemic year, there's been a lot of judging. We have judged people who have received the vaccines. We have judged people who have not received the vaccines. We judge them if they wear a face mask. We judge them if they don't wear a face mask. We judge them on their tolerance. We judge them on their intolerance. We judge them on their politics. And we judge them if we don't agree with our politics. If this year has taught us anything, it has taught us that we are falling apart at the seams because those seams are supposed to be held together by mutual understanding and mutual respect. And judgment always corrodes those seams. And we just become a nation of partisan hacks. It has evolved to such a degree, a degree that the same words being used before the Civil War are being used today. The very same words. 
we heard we hear the word traitor being bandied, bandied about. We hear the word insurrection. We hear the word revolution. We hear the words death to our enemies and so forth. This is pre-Civil War rhetoric. And exactly how long do you think this is going to last? Well, I'm here to tell you it won't last long. As history has shown us, and when this judgment phase at least subsides, as it surely will, the real heroes will be the ones who stood up for mutual respect and who extended hands to heal. The ones calling for blood will soon be vilified. Now, this kind of judgment is not new, especially in Jewish history. Our Haftarah that Stella read is exactly below, uh, 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 or that, that, that Stella will read this afternoon, excuse me, um, is exactly like that. This is a story about a so-called reluctant prophet that you're going to hear about. And who is that prophet? It is Jonah. And it is about the lengths that people, people like us, will go to avoid confronting the truth that our constant judgment about others corrodes our souls, makes us forget who we're supposed to be. Jonah is a truly bizarre book of the Bible. You probably know the basics of the story. Jonah is called by God to tell the people of Nineveh to repent. But he runs away. He finds a ship. He gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish. He gets spit up onto the shore where he's now forced to wander the city telling the people to repent. And after he accomplishes his task, he's still not satisfied and he seeks shelter under the leaf of a large gourd. And when it dies, he fetches. And God has one more lesson for him when he says to him, this is what you're worried about? You're fetching about a leaf when what you should have really been satisfied with is that that city that you sought their uh, repentance has been redeemed. And there the book ends. No real ending. It's just a slew of questions. And because there's no real ending, the story leaves us dissatisfied because there's no answers. Why did he run away? Why was he so, so reluctant to do what every other prophet has done and say something like, I'm not worthy, or the more common, send me? I think that the book of Jonah doesn't give any clear answers, and I think it doesn't give any clear answers because it's a Jewish book. It is screaming Darshani, figure it out. And in figuring out, you'll find out something about yourselves. So in that spirit... Let's try to figure it out and maybe figure out something about ourselves. Since Yom Kippur is a day of holding up the proverbial mirror to ourselves, let's do that. We may not like what we see, but it is only by seeing something about ourselves that we don't want to look at that we can finally become the people that we think we are. First of all, who is Jonah? We have no idea. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about his childhood. We don't know anything about his education. And the only thing we know, by the way, is his father's name. Now, before I tell you what his father's name is, keep in mind that the book of Jonah is not a history. 
It is meant to illuminate something to the reader. His father's name is Amitai. Amitai comes from the Hebrew word truth. Jonah is the child of truth. He believed himself to be the one and only possessor of the truth. And since he had the truth, he didn't have the inclination to share it with anybody, since people who believe they are the sole possessors of truth have no time for anybody else or anything else. They always make terrible teachers. They are terribly impatient. And that's why the rabbis taught us that the wise person is the person who learns from everybody else. By keeping ourselves open to learning from somebody else, we admit that we are not the sole possessors of the truth. But the truth is that Jonah doesn't understand the truth, the full truth anyhow. He believes that since he is so devoted to God, no one can achieve his level of piety. And since no one else can find God the same way he can, he fills himself with arrogance. He may be pious, but he is a rank amateur when it comes to understanding the importance of faith and devotion to God and to each other. But there is hope. Even though he sees himself far and above everyone else, he still finds the emotional tug of God's comfort in the belly of the fish. He is scared. He is alone. And even though he may have the intellect and the grasp of a certain measure of truth, after all, he's the son of truth, he melts into jelly when confronted with his own mortality. And so he has a newfound humility. He has a newfound understanding about himself. The fish takes him to Nineveh, where he helps the population repent of their sins. You would think that Jonah would feel good about this, but he doesn't. He thinks he gave away too much of himself, and he's angry at himself and at God for making him do something humble. And now he feels he needs to explain himself. And in one of the most interesting lines in the book, this is what Jonah says. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew <coughs> that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. The last part is familiar to you. Jonah mentions the 13 attributes of God, which are spoken several times in the days of awe. The cantor sang them today. But he changes something. The phrase we usually say never ends with Niham al-hara'ah, but rather with the word emet, truth. There's that word again, truth. In effect, Jonah is saying, you want to know why I ran away, God? Because for most people, you, religion, spirituality, is not about truth. It's just about comfort. And once again, Jonah tries to run away from that part of himself which is sympathetic, which is empathic, which is understanding, which is gentle. And he couches it in a very snarky remark to God. God does not take the bait. 
God reminds Jonah, and by extension, every one of us, that God is a God of comfort, not of strict judgment. The image of God writing in his little black book about who will live and who will die is a metaphor which is misunderstood, and it turns God into a capricious and arbitrary decider of who will live and who will die. It's a metaphor that I don't use anymore. It's a metaphor that needs to be revisited, revised, and reformed. But, of course, Jonah would never think that. Jonah was convinced, as are many of us, that our outlook on the world, that the way we believe is, is the only correct way, and that only we are worthy of reward. We are so sure that God will look at our names and say, oh, yes, so-and-so is such a righteous person. I will, of course, keep them alive. This is the fundamental and well-known image that we see in the poem of Unatanatokev, who by fire, who by water, who by sickness, who will live, who will die. And it's a frightening poem when we read it. And even the most stalwart of us step back and pause. But Jonah, like every one of us here today, knows that nothing really works that way. God's little black book, if it even exists, remains in God's purview. And with very few exceptions, we all believe we're getting into it. Well, this past year and the 650,000 American deaths and the untold suffering that we endured ought to remind us that God's little black book is only our way of making sense of what is often an arbitrary world. And so if everything is arbitrary, why bother? Let's go back to the little black book poem. At the end, it says something very strange. It says it seems to contradict the previous paragraphs. It says who by fire, who by water, who by strangling, who by stoning, and so forth. And then at the very end it says, but prayer, repentance, and charity save from the harshness of the decree. That's weird. Maybe people can understand, uh, okay, maybe I can understand the prayer and repentance saving from the harshness of decree, maybe. But why should tzedakah, commonly known as charity, save us? Well, I believe the, na- the answer lies in the nature of tzedakah. Tzedakah, doing righteous, extends to all creatures. It does not discriminate on who the basis of your favorite politician is, or who your God is, or who your family is. It's encompassing. It's comprehensive. It's also the only thing in the list that embraces embraces the notion of compassion and not intellect. And it speaks nothing of one's beliefs or ideas about God. does not require the Jonah-like arrogance of being a know-it-all. It is our overflow and our expression of whatever faith, be it intellectual or emotional, that we possess. The poem uses a most interesting word, and you can really tell its uh, its subtlety by looking at it carefully. The text tells us that God is recording everything we do and making a ledger in his little black book. There's no way out of this, it seems. We're either blessed or we're doomed. But at the end of the poem, when it tells us how to avoid all this, 
the text uses the word ma'avirin. Now, it's often said that, or translated as to avert, that is, to avert the severe decree. But in Hebrew, one word can have several meanings, and they are only understood by stepping back and pondering it and not using a dictionary. In this case, the root is ayin vet resh, which is avar, which can mean something to cross over, to get to the other side, to go beyond, to transcend. We speak of sin as an avera, a going to the other side of our better selves. But in this case, perhaps ma'avirin, to annul, doesn't mean what our machzor suggests. Since nothing can annul a decree of death for any of us, we must understand this word's meaning in the face of reality if it is to have any relevance. And perhaps we can understand what Jonah never really quite understood, that trying to escape our inevitable end by framing our lives as do A and then B will happen never works. So then how do we understand the idea of ma'avirin? Since it can mean transcend or go beyond, we can understand this formula to mean to ma'avirin et to go beyond our terror of death. This formulation is both intellectually honest and emotionally faithful. By engaging in acts of uh, of, of, of righteousness, of tzedakah, we touch the world beyond our lives. And even though our names may be forgotten over time, the effect of what we have done in the world reverberates through the generations. We may die, but something of us can never die. And the way we touch people through our acts of righteousness lives forever. I stand on this bima. And you sit in those seats only because of the acts of tzedakah of people who are long gone. Jonah thought he could run away from everybody who he thought was undeserving. But he forgot about compassion. He forgot about understanding. He forgot that trying to give people a sense of purpose and meaning is really what God wanted. He thought their emotions were not the way to feel and find God. And that's why Jonah was wrong. He wasn't a reluctant prophet. He was a bad prophet. And yet if he was so bad, why is he in the Bible? And why is his book of all others read on this holy day? Because the truth is that who he was was not the totality of who he was. I like to think that when the book ends and Jonah suffers a bit, he finally gets it. He has had his Yom Kippur sitting under a withering gourd vine and getting too hot. He is a prophet, not because he is a Jewish failure. He is a prophet because he came to understand that being holy rests on the cornerstone of compassion. I believe he does, and I believe he finally understands that the emotional longing for God, the pain of regret 
that people feel. The longing to reconnect is not intellectual. And though it isn't as intellectual, it's just as valid than the complex philosophies about proving that what you think about God is what God is. Jonah is a prophet because Jonah finally understands compassion. Jonah is a prophet because Jonah is all of us. Yom Kippur is here. After a year filled with hundreds of thousands of dead Americans, with destruction, with too many early Jonahs running around telling us how they are right and everyone else is wrong. Some of our Jonahs are still running away, but some have looked around them and have seen what they have done and worse, what they are capable of doing. And maybe on this Yom Kippur, we see a little bit of Jonah in ourself as well and back off. Early Jonah need not be the one who we remain. Each of us has the power, the potential to reconnect. We can rebuild broken relationships. And even if we can't rebuild friendships, we can still rebuild civility. It takes sadaka, acts of righteousness, and an act of compassion. We may never change a mind, but we can change a way that we approach a mind. And that act of righteousness can make Yom Kippur truly an important moment in our lives. My friends, our Jonah moment has arrived. And I ask you yet another question. Do we run or do we transcend the impulse? And I believe that that is the question, the most important question that we ought to be asking ourselves today and in the coming year. And so I wish you a Shana Tova. Make it a year of true Jonah. Less judgment, more compassion. For the world is in great need of compassion more than anything else. Shana Tova and Gamar Chatimah Tova.